Well, good morning. Let's get started here. Thanksgiving season is upon us. So if you're traveling this week, be careful in the crowds. If you're not, enjoy a little extra rest, hopefully. Let's uh, think about Thanksgiving this morning in both hours of our study. But this morning, uh, let's look at Psalm 78. I want to walk through this psalm and glean from Psalm 78, uh, thoughts on Thanksgiving. Again, we like to call this the equip hour, and I want to try to help you think through what it means to read the Psalms and glean from them. What are, what are we trying to take away as we read the Psalms? Especially a Psalm like this, Psalm 78, uh, which is so detailed in its historical record. It's telling us a story from before, and we hear Paul's words in the New Testament. These things are written for our admonition. We hear these old stories so that we will be challenged by them. So we want to do that this morning. We want to read the psalm and, and be challenged. So as we're reading, uh, it's as if this was your Bible reading for this morning. You read through this, and you're, you're trying to come up with something you're supposed to learn from it. Um, and I know that's a little different but in Sunday school than reading alone, but maybe it's not all that different. Maybe the silence that we have when I say, okay, what do you see here? And, you know, everybody's like, oh, I don't know. Uh, Maybe that's how your reading goes at home and you never really get to, well, I think this is what I need to do. Um, So let this be instructive, not only as the word teaches, but as we learn how to let the word teach us. Psalm 78 is known for its generational communication, for this mandate to pass on the stories of God's work, uh, to pass on the failures of God's people, so that in seeing both of those, we will be constantly reminded to, one, see God at work in our lives, and two, avoid the mistakes that the generations before us made. Uh, So your Bible may even have some kind of generational heading over Psalm 78, That wouldn't be part of the inspired text. Uh, The text would begin with the little um, script there, the heading, a mascal of Asaph. Uh, Asaph, we know by name as one of the leading musicians of uh, Israel. uh, And the mascal, some kind of liturgical musical term. Uh, We don't know if that was an expression of an opening song um, what it was, but the mascal of Asaph is just reminding us God has always had musicians serving the church, and in this case, using one of these men under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us this text. So we're, we're going to just begin reading, uh, and your task then as students is to uh, be drawing out observations from the text. Um, Anybody listen to Bot Radio and hear some of the preachers on there? Remember one of the preachers that always calls his congregation students or pupils? David Jeremiah out there. Uh, 
They'll say class sometimes and all kinds of words to remind the congregation you're supposed to be learning something. Uh, and we can't always give a, a quiz at the end of the service and make sure you filled in your blanks right. Uh, that wouldn't always be fair since sometimes I'm reminded that I didn't give the blanks. So, uh, But the point is we're supposed to be learning this morning. So let's do that from Psalm 78, a mascal of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Let's just start with that opening kind of chorus that begins this song. Uh, What do we hear in these opening verses? You can start in verse 1 or you can grab something in verse 4, but somewhere in verses 1 to 4, where do we begin this study of Psalm 78 with observations? Uh, now, don't even, you don't have to even tie it to Thanksgiving. That's going to come out in the text later. Um, but give us some food to start chewing on. Okay, the importance of sharing with the future generations. So we will not hide them from their children, their children speaking of the fathers. So from our generation or from the next, uh, we're going to pass these things on. Our fathers told us, and we're telling the coming generation. Roy? There's this idea of hidden things. What do you think? Where do you get the hidden things? Okay, so the the hidden things are dark sayings from of old. Could be lost things, uh, things that haven't been communicated, um, much like Josiah's Day, revival of the word. Could be with the uh, understanding of dark sayings, it could have the heaviness of what you're going to read isn't a pretty picture, um, which is probably a, a, a fitting understanding of these dark or hidden sayings from of old. Um, it's just not a pleasant story that's going to unfold here when you, when you look at the folly of ungratefulness. Yeah. In my lifetime... The places that I have been and where I have associated, we had everything figured out. We didn't really even need to think about the stuff. If it didn't just jump out at you, it wasn't important to me. So there's a lot of hidden stuff that we just kind of blitz blitz. Right. So the danger is anytime we read the Bible, we kind of just grab onto something easy and, and don't force ourselves to take pick and shovel and start mining uh, to get down to the depths. Good. All right, what else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, it's a big... The Hebrew language has a small vocabulary. Uh, you may have heard this before. 
but any of their words can have a lot of nuance. So it, it takes a little bit of work to figure out exactly where it's going. That's where like a key word in the Old Testament, the Hebrew language is hesed. Well, it's, it's the word for God's loving kindness. It's translated that way. It's the word for mercy. It's translated that way. It's his word for faithfulness, translated that way. It's translated as covenant, loyalty. There's, there's all these ideas that are wrapped up in this benevolent kind of word of the Hebrew language. Whereas the Greek language in the New Testament has a massive vocabulary, and so you're familiar with like four or five words just for the word love. Um, so Hebrew and Greek are very different, and so when we come to words like this, when you hear a different translation, it's not because there was like a real controversy and, oh, what did the manuscripts say? It's generally just like, boy, which, which aspect of this Hebrew word, which is loaded with meaning, are, are we trying to communicate? And, and that's where we're helped to read all of Psalm 78 and realize, okay, that's the story. Uh, what is best meant by dark sayings, hidden things, obscure, um, all those different meanings there? Right. So in the same sentence, the same verse, we have this obscurity idea, but we also have heard and known. So maybe the weightiness isn't so much on us, like, I have no idea what we're talking about. It's, no, what is being communicated is the content that's hard and, and hidden, obscure, whatever word is used to translate it there. Um, and I think that's what we'll see in this story because it's, while there's a lesson here on Thanksgiving, it, it's just not, it's a dark chapter to think of how Israel responded to constant blessing from God. Uh, this favored, chosen, loved, uh, covenant-receiving people, and at every opportunity, they poke their finger in God's eye and say, no thanks. Um, that's kind of the summary of Psalm 78, uh, and it's worth us learning from. All right, what else in these first four verses? Daniel. Right, anytime you see a clear command and the text begins with one, give ear, O my people, to my teaching, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Classic Hebrew poetry, two lines uh, kind of saying the same thing different words so that our minds immediately are hearing another thing and piecing it together. Um, So clearly, if I only read verse 1, I would come away thinking, I'm supposed to be giving an ear, a, a hearing to the arguments that come from God. When he speaks, I'm supposed to hear that. Um, And now I can go down the path of application thinking, okay, maybe instead of you know, arguing with people driving down the road and complaining about their driving, maybe I'll take in 
a sermon on the radio or a part of it and just hear the word or I'll listen to somebody, you know, read the Bible on my Bible app or something. Uh, I I would apply this verse by simply thinking, okay, when am I going to give ear to the word? Um, I know some of you listen to the sermons if you miss them or sometimes you go back and listen and get your outline filled out or uh, you listen to guys on the radio, you read books. All of that is giving ear to the teaching, what God has revealed. Um, so that's good. We, we don't want to miss those, those easy commands because right away I'm confronted with, I have to obey this. I have to give ear to the teaching that God has revealed uh, to us. And add to that in verse 3, it's things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Uh, some of you have been in church a long time. Uh, don't do this now or during the service, but if you try to think through how many services you've sat through, how many teaching lectures of Sunday school, morning service, some of you used to go Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, week-long revival meetings, week-long evangelistic meetings. I added ten and a half summers of summer camp with morning chapel, evening chapel. I could stop going to church now, and I think I'd still have a pretty good record of number of services attended. So we, we know a lot of what comes to us in sermon after sermon on Sunday uh, if we've been around the word. And yet the command is give ear to this teaching. I know this, you know, obviously think this Israelite context. I know your fathers have taught this. I know many of you have memorized portions of the law, large portions of it. But give ear to this, even if you've heard it and known it before. Uh, and then, as Gary reminds us, verse 4, we need to pass these things on. And what is it in verse 4 that we're actually telling the coming generation? Because it's not, we don't have to, this isn't an essay question like, okay, so what are you going to pass on to the next generation? No, it's more fill in the blank, like God's given us what it is. Uh, pass on these, the glorious deeds of the Lord. All right. What does that mean? What does it mean to pass on the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might and the wonders he has done? Yeah, I mean, you can go all over the place with this. You can say, well, in the context, this came to Israelites and their recent history, you know, so you could go back to his promises to Abraham, to Jacob, how he cared for Israel as he brought them out, rescued them from Egypt, leads them to the promised land, gives them the land by driving out the enemies, establishes judges to rescue them, kings eventually to lead them, um, But then you can also say, okay, I'm not just telling the Bible stories to my kids, uh, but I can start helping them understand that all those stories and promises actually find their fulfillment in Christ and his rescue and his redemption and his shepherding and his kingship and his prophetic word. And uh, we start passing on our own accounts of glorious deeds or wonders he has done. doesn't necessarily mean you have some record of miraculous things you've seen God do, but just call it at least things you've seen God do, um, be they miraculous or not. Um, 
we pass on the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might and the wonders he has done. All right, let's read on and, and you be listening in this next section uh, for more. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. All right, five through eight. What do we have? There's a connection between remembering and recounting God's faithfulness and the opposite, which would be unfaithfulness to God. Yeah. So we're seeing this is important because of this run-on sentence that unfolds. Um, Yes, verse 5, that generational communication, pass it on, commanded the fathers to teach their children so that the next generation would know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. They set their hope in God, lest they end up like the generation whose heart was not steadfast. These are the alternatives. So the the story's laying out for us just a simple path with a why in the road, and there's a choice point there. Uh, Am I going to rest in God's faithfulness and trust him, uh, or am I going to rebel and be stubborn and go my own way? What else? Well, that God had established, you know, a testimony in Jacob. I mean, this is from God. It's important. It's not something to be taken lightly. Uh, so what is this testimony in Jacob? Gary or anyone? What? Well, you know, just like what you were saying, you, you look back and like when the Lord delivered them out of Egypt and then all the miracles that he performed, but yet how they continually gripe, complain, things of that nature, and then when he led them into the promised land. uh, So there's the record of of God's dealing. How does Hebrew poetry help us in translating this? Right? Right, so testimony, law, or first you can go established, appointed, testimony, law, Jacob, Israel. There's the similarities. So now we're Reminded of like Psalm 119, where it's testimonies, law, statutes, judgments, commandments, all these words that are used to describe what we would call God's revelation to us. So on one hand, we hear testimony and we think, oh, I stand up and say something about what God has done. And then we hear law and we think, bad, we want grace. Um, but we need not think bad. We need simply think this is God's revelation. Sometimes it's Law, proper, the, the very form of commands. Thou shalt not, or thou shalt this. Um, other times, it's the record. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Um, the testimonies, the law, the statutes, the commandments, the judgments, all of those words are simply telling us God has given us revelation. 
And Deuteronomy 29, remember, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that he has revealed are for us and for our children. So that's what this is saying. God's made himself known, and as much as we can see that, we're supposed to be communicating that to the next generation. Verse, what, what do we find here in verse 7? What else is here for us? How would we make observations from verse 7? What does that word so indicate? So or so that, that speaks to What? Yeah, reason, purpose. Like, it's helping us understand, like, why? Why is this such a big deal that the whole first paragraph is about tell the next generation, and now he's saying it again in verse 5, tell the next generation, and that, so that they would arise and tell their children. And then we get to the so, and like, okay, here's why this is so important. And why is that? Yeah, this is the content of faith. Remember, faith is believing something. It's, it's seeing something even if it's not seen with the eye, Hebrews tells us. That substance of things hoped for, it's evidence. We, we see evidence and we think a courtroom and, you know, you hold up the document or they hold up the Ziploc bag with the weapon in it or something. We see evidence and can draw conclusions. Well, Faith is evidence, it's just you don't see it. That's what faith means. It's unseen and you're trusting God. So we tell these things to the next generation so that they should set their hope in God. So that they would have that content, that evidence for faith. You can't make them have faith. That's not the command. Fathers, make your children have faith. No, it's show them God tell of his works so that they can put their faith in God, their hope in God. But it goes on, and not forget the works of God, key word, but, so whatever came before is about to be offset by what comes after. Instead of forgetting, we have keeping his commandments. And, sentence goes on, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful. So those words are all kind of synonymous with the forgetting the works of God. You either forget, you're not steadfast, not faithful, or you do. You keep the commandments. Forget is, is such a unique word then. Because now I'm, I'm looking at forget versus keep, and I can go to any Bible story in the Old Testament of the great heroes of the faith that failed miserably, that sinned, uh, just like you and I, and realize it, it, it wasn't a matter of not knowing the truth. When David sins with Bathsheba, it's not that he doesn't know who God is and what God wants. We can read the Psalms. We can, we can hear God telling Saul way back before David's anointed king. So he's the shepherd boy, probably, you know, maybe a late teenager, maybe. Um, 
And, and God's telling Saul at that moment, I have another king that I'm going to anoint because I'm taking the kingdom from you and it's a man after my own heart. So David, even as a youngster, is the man after God's own heart. He's penning these psalms. He's serving the Lord. He's patiently waiting. He's not going after Saul, the Lord's anointed. All these great things about David. So we know that he knows God. We know that he loves God. He knows God's commands. He knows holiness and righteousness. He knows the law. So what goes wrong with Bathsheba? Killing Uriah and implementing these plans. What's going on when he's penning instructions to Joab to make sure Uriah gets to the front lines and killed in battle? What's happening in those moments? The Bible says it's a forgetfulness. God is distant, and, and, and we're going about our business forgetting that the eye of the Lord is in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Uh, it's a forgetfulness. Uh, there are times it, it sure seems purposeful, right? That Because uh, we know the truth, and yet we're choosing something else. And oftentimes that may be the manipulation of our understanding of grace. You know, Romans 6, should I continue in sin that grace could abound? Seemed like some were trying to argue that. Paul says, absolutely not. God forbid, that is, that's not the way it works. Um, but just note that word, forget, because you could plow through any old week, let alone the week of Thanksgiving, and not really be thankful, and you would say, but, 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 I was busy doing this, and I had these roles to fill, and I did do this, and it just probably best characterizes, yes, but you, you forgot something that was important. Um, and so show the next generation the wonder of God, because it's that awe, it's that wonder that becomes foundational to hope, to remembrance, to obedience, ultimately to loyalty and faithfulness. Um, that's the right path. At the why in the road, choose the remembrance, the keeping, steadfast, faithful, whose heart is bent on doing God's way, unlike now what we're going to hear about this generation of the fathers. Verse 9, the Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle, they did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. So Ephraimites, again, another nickname for the Israelites. They forgot his works, verse 11, and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Asaph is grabbing up some of these highlights. He's saying, how is it that these Israelites could turn back from the battle that God had basically already won for them, how they could forsake the covenant, how is it that they could forget some of these things that God had done for them? 
the wonders of Egypt, that, that sea with that bizarre concept that Exodus reveals that the waters flowing down stood up in a heap and they're just like piled up because it had to go somewhere and they crossed on dry land. Led by a cloud, not some distant cloud somewhere off in the sky and trying to calculate, is that the right cloud? No, it was pretty obvious, this pillar of cloud it was called. And then at nighttime, it turns into this blaze of light, this fiery pillar. And then they get thirsty, they're in a desert, there's that, no evidence of help, just rocks and sand, and God's like, that's all I need. And he splits the rock at Moses's striking of that rock, and, and water comes out, and, and, and it's like water from the deep. It's like that Bennett Spring down in Missouri. It's, it's going to be enough for everybody. And he doesn't even list some of the other things yet with other food that God provided. But now he's listed all of these good things, and yet we get to the next verse, the next key word, yet. Maybe your text says, however. So after all that, here's what God has done, yet they sinned, and we'll get to the rest of it, against him, but even in the Hebrew, there's a little bit more of an emphasis, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart. And that's not, here, we'll we'll write up a hard question and test God. It's no, they evaluated him. They put him on trial. They put him in the balance and stepped back and said, "Mm, insufficient. Ah, That's not enough. Look at all of our problems. Put God on the scale and the problems outweigh God. He's not doing a very good job here. They tested him and found him wanting, lacking in their faithlessness. Verse 18, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? All right. What's unfolding here? We pick up from this in this blatant contrast of God's work to their rebellion. I'll remind you that John told us sometimes forgetfulness can be intentional. We, might not like, we may not like that, but in verse 10 we read, they refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and wonders. Um, so we're never off the hook. Forgetfulness isn't excused. Um, forgetfulness is more intentional than we tend to realize so they refused, they forgot. What else do you see here? When you would think that with the miracles that the Lord had done for them, bringing water out of these rocks in the desert, that that would have led them to trust him more and have more faith in him, and knowing that he can provide. So there's the observation. You would think they, having seen God provide and 
see God work and seen him been faithful, you would think they would trust him more. So now let's talk application. How do we apply this? Well, you apply it with, you would think, we, having seen God work and be faithful and provide for us, you would think we would be a little bit better at trusting him. Um, so that's, that's how we study the Bible. Yes, this is about someone else in a wilderness. And you might never wander in a wilderness and might never really have the question of hunger or thirst. But what do we learn from it? What we learn is these people, given every evidence that God is faithful and will take care of them and has promised to do so, uh, should trust him. Application, we, having you know, millennia of data now showing God's faithfulness and his promise keeping and having promises for us to be anticipating, should have faith that God is going to keep those promises. All right, what else? What's, what's the ugliness in verses 19 and 20? They spoke against God? Yep. What else? Or what more even? They didn't trust How are we to read these questions? Unthankful. Yeah. Using God's miracles and provision almost against him. Yeah, against God they spoke, it says in verse 19. So knowing that, that they're speaking against God. We shouldn't read in our scripture reading these questions, curiosity. We shouldn't read request or hope. Oh, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Oh, I hope so. We're really hungry. It's... No, there's nothing innocent. There's nothing curious. There's nothing hopeful here. This is, this is scorn. This is almost mockery of miraculous provision of the past. Oh, he struck the rock, so water gushed out. Is he also going to make the rocks turn to bread? And when you read the question that way, you read rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. The King Saul was going to be told that. In other words, it's devilish. It's devilish for these people to say, what, is God going to turn stones to bread? And then read in Matthew that the devil comes and says, why don't you turn stones to bread? This is, this is devilish. It, it is totally anti-God. It is against God to take his works to dismiss them and say, yeah, but I bet you're not going to take care of me now and, and just live by literally the cravings of the belly. I want something now, and if you're not going to give it to me, I'm moving on. Because you made water come from a rock, great, but that doesn't matter right now. You need to do more. So these questions are antagonistic questions. They are against God. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Most of us would ask that question, and if we're thinking of this story or our own lives, we would be marveling that God can do that. We would be thinking Psalm 23. He prepares a table 
before me in the presence of my enemies. God is such a good shepherd that even when surrounded by enemies, I can be at peace and have communion with him. I'm good. You could be one of these African families today with your starving child on your lap, knowing that life is short, you're going to starve to death. But in the presence of that enemy, God is enough. That's the hope of God's people. And yet here we see them scorning God with that very question that he had promised through David in Psalm 23. Whoa, can God set a table in the wilderness? The answer is, of course he can. Of course he can. So trust him. Believe him that he will. But instead, they were using it as exhibit A. I bet God can't even do this because right now I'm hungry, so God must not be good. So these questions are ugly questions. It is against God. Uh, and, And this is different than even what we'll read elsewhere where the psalmist is crying out in confusion or frustration because the wicked seem to be prospering. And we hear the questions of the psalmist, but they're not the faithless abandon of God's reputation, his character, his faithfulness. They're not against God like these questions are. Uh, These are hard and ugly questions, and I think that's part of our understanding of uh, how the psalm began there. So doubt, perhaps even scoffing. Then we read in verse 21, Therefore, when the Lord heard this, or heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God. Well, we go back to, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where does it say they didn't believe? Well, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They just weren't thankful for what God had done. Can he spread a table? I know he made water come from a rock, but can he give us bread? They weren't thankful for what they had, which seems to equal in the understanding of God's wrath. They did not believe in God. They did not trust his saving power. Again, they, 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 application, but do we believe in God? Do we trust his saving power? Are are we sure that God's going to be faithful regardless of economy, regardless of job, regardless of, you know, welfare and health of our family? Are we believing and trusting that he is still the God of saving power? And this saving isn't just saving from sin. In the first context here, it's they're hungry and thirsty and being led in the wilderness. Is, you know, he's, he's saving them constantly, constantly being the answer, the rescue, the provision. And God's anger is against them because they did not believe, did not trust Although, verse 23, he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas and let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were filled, 
for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. All right. What do we see here? This gets a little interesting towards the end there. What's God's response to their demands and their unbelief? Righteous wrath? Definitely see that at the end? Right. It's interesting that although his anger is kindled against them because they did not believe, verse 23, yet he commanded the skies to open and basically provided manna, caused the wind to blow and it brings in birds. It says, I don't remember if it says knee high or waist high or something in the original story, but these Little hens, you know, you can get them at Costco, those little rotisserie birds, you know, there they are, they're showing up. Take as many as you want. Let some fall in their camp, and they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. What, what, did, what do we do with that? Yeah, Jonathan? I'm hearing kind of shades of Romans 1 of God giving them up in the lust of their hearts to what they want. Um, There's kind of God saying, you want to go down this path eventually, sure, I'll let you have what you what you desire. It's going to ruin you, but I'm giving you up to the lust of your hearts. Yeah, there, I think there is something of that there, that God gives them what they craved. Quite literally, um, and and it ends up being a manifestation of judgment. Um, just for exploring that, like what what could the alternative have been? Yeah, the alternative is to believe that what God provides is what is best for you. Because this account reminds me so much of Eden and where Adam and Eve were taken care of and, and we, we look at them in the same way and like how could they do what they did? But it all boils down to not trusting that God is good and that what he gives is best, being content with that. Right. I think this is the alternative. We go back to they're in the wilderness and they don't have water or they're in the wilderness and don't have food and in their minds they could be troubled by that. God's not troubled that we're troubled like that we see the problems or feel the, the need. But if they said, Lord, we don't know what to do. There's like no water here for us or our animals. That, that's a concern. That's a, the casting of cares. That's showing the need. And, and God could have said, hey, you just need to trust me. And he could have satisfied their craving by increasing their faith as the disciples asked him to do. He could have shown him himself and said, no, you just need to trust me. Believe that I'm good. But instead, he satisfied what they really wanted. They did not want to see more of God. They wanted to be satisfied. They wanted a big, full stomach. They wanted post-Thanksgiving feeling on the couch, right? Um, And God gives it to them. 
but that wasn't what God had designed as best for them. Um, and that takes us back to Jonathan's point, that, then that must be judgment. God doesn't look at good, his best, and something that's going to end in ruin and say, mm, I think I'll give him this. No, he delights to do us good. God is for us. If he would spare not his own son, Romans says, will he not freely give us all things that we need? So God does what is good. That's Romans 8's argument surrounded in that love of God to us. So this is obviously not God's good to them when we read he satisfied their craving. They ate and were well filled. It's showing us kind of like what C.S. Lewis argued for in his famous, you know, mud pie scenario that, you know, we could have had a vacation at the sea and the beauties of ocean and all, and we were busy instead in the slums playing in the mud. Um, Far too easily satisfied. They thought their craving, what they needed was food in their stomach, immediate needs met. What they needed really was faith in a good and faithful God. Roy? This smacks to me of them trying to manipulate God. Yeah, you can bring water out, but you're really like a T-bone snake. I bet you I can kind of manipulate it to get that. I think it, it may be so. It, once we are in this category of refusing, rebelling, you know, our own cravings, there's the manifestation of the flesh, then Galatians 5, it just becomes, you know, an ugly scene. And that's exactly what we have here. So even after God provides the water from the rock, birds in abundance, manna uh, every day, and double portion before the Sabbath, Verse 32, in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. Okay, pass over that quickly. Um, And some did that but it was not the majority because we quickly are back to, but they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them and did not stir up all his wrath. So the portions of wrath that we've seen so far were only designed as merciful acts to lead them to full repentance. So his full wrath hasn't been poured out. We see that even in the flood of the whole earth. It wasn't all of his wrath because he doesn't spare even eight and animals if, if he's, all his wrath is poured out. So in all these yet, but, although, yet, he did this, this is, this is a lesson in mercy, uh, this is a lesson in understanding that God is long-suffering, uh, even with sinners, and is pouring out constant graces on the unbelieving. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, and not just the rain, but the prosperity and the family relationships and the beauty of grandchildren and good health and all these things that even unbelievers enjoy. And, 
And they're accountable to God for all of it. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Yet how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. We could go on and on. They keep testing, believing. Um, You get to the plagues of Egypt. You could read the rest of the story. But as we get down to the very end, verse 67, he rejects the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. And in our minds, we're thinking, okay, why does it matter which son of Jacob is favored? And it's because of how that favor is going to be demonstrated. He chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes he brought him, to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. It's a bizarre ending. If this story is... Let me give you the detailed history of how God has dealt with his people. And then basically it abruptly stops at the kingdom of David. And all all we're left with in a solution is that David guided these people well. So what do do we do with David guiding the people well as a conclusion to this psalm that we were trying to apply to us, and now the story just ends with, these people are a mess, but he chose Judah and David to shepherd them well. All right? Well, the writer was contemporary of David, so he wouldn't have seen without revelation any further in the future. All right, so... Contextually, Asaph, contemporary of David, you know, that's his observation. That's what he's seen to this point. What do we conclude from this as we're trying to apply the whole story to us? Okay, do not be forgetful, rebellious, stubborn, don't live by temporal cravings, all these things. What do we do with the ending? David shepherded well. Paul? Still thinking, but um, hasn't stopped me from talking before. Uh, <laughs> I'd say that just one that points to, like thinking about winding back in the chapter about Jacob and that there's an element there uh, this verse 5 or 7 on the front of me right now, but uh, remembering Jacob, that there's an element there that we're talking about the covenant faithfulness of God which then thinking about Judah and God setting his affection there brings to mind just that not all Israel is Israel. Um, But that also then points to the need for a better shepherd and a better covenant, a, a better manifestation of covenant in Christ uh, towards true Israel. Uh, which is just kind of pointing us towards what it what it means to be thankful and what it means to love God, and then I think also just the the juxtaposition between but here's Judah and here's the faithful shepherd king, um, 
I think it's pointing to that there's a real fruit of that thankfulness, or maybe I should say the other way around, that lack of thankfulness might be the fruit of actual unbelief. Um, and that when I'm not thankful in a true Godward way, that there's actual, um, and it's very root, there's an unbelief in God. What we see here in this last paragraph is that something of all this mess of struggling to believe, living for self and needs and not trusting the Lord, the answer to all that is a good shepherd. We need a shepherd to guide us a little better than this, somebody that would shepherd us, shepherd us with a skillful hand. Um, so the answer will be found in a shepherd. And clearly, that's what will unfold in the New Testament. Hebrews will conclude, will conclude with a benediction, calling Christ that great shepherd of the sheep. We read Psalm 78, and we say, My hope at believing today and tomorrow and the next day is that I have a good shepherd. I will not lack for anything. John Piper says, you know, you will wake up a Christian tomorrow because of God, because he is faithful. So our great hope of not being unbelieving and ungrateful and rebellious and all those other descriptions of Israel is that there is a good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I do not lack anything. That's an expression of faith. And so this Thanksgiving season... Read Psalm 78 and like reel in horror at what you see, but then realize the hope for me to be a thankful person and not even temporarily forgetful in my sinfulness is to constantly look to the answer that God's given, the good shepherd. And so, Lord, we give thanks to you for you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. And we experience it daily in the love that you have demonstrated for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord in whose name we pray, amen.